Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University, a historian of science, and a funk musician. I am extremely pleased today to be joined by Adam Rutherford, a geneticist and science communicator par excellence, whose recent book, How to Argue with a Racist, History, Science, Race, and Reality, will be the subject of our discussion today. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Matthew. Well, let's just get started. You have written many books in your long and storied career as a science communicator. Why did you want to write this one? It's not that long. You know, I'm not that old. (laughs) My mid-40s. Anyway, um, uh, well, you know, I think the real answer is I I didn't. Uh, I just felt compelled to. Um, The you know, like, like, like many geneticists, what I'm really interested in is DNA and genes and evolution and that sort of stuff. But my work as a science communicator has taken me down to down the route of explaining, you know, this incredibly complex subject, which we really are only just beginning to understand, which is, which is, you know, the human genome, genetics, evolution, stuff like that. Right. So that's my passion. But the the, the last book, but one, which was called a brief history of of everyone who ever lived. I, I wrote a chapter, a chunky chapter about um, the history of race uh, in relation to genetics, because the two things are inherently intertwined, and also to do with the fact that I, I was and still am at UCL, where many of the key ideas in scientific racism, and particularly a, a separate but related domain, which is eugenics, were founded at, at UCL. And I indeed was in the Galton Laboratory, which no longer exists, founded by Francis Galton, Darwin's half-cousin, who was the the person who came up with the sort of formal um, uh, doctrine and study of, of eugenics. So, you know, inevitably these, these, these pathways, my academic, um, pathways clashed at the point where I'm writing about human evolution and the history of genetics. Um, and you can't avoid talking about race and to a certain extent eugenics, if you're going to talk about the history of my subject. So that that was in that was in the previous book, and then what happened over the last that was, that was released in two thousand sixteen, I think it was, um, and since two thousand and sixteen, the whole political landscape of the Western world has has shifted on its axis. Um, we, we you know we had the rise of populism and nationalism with Trump elected in in um, in the USA with Brexit in the UK. And now 10 years of a right-wing government that is becoming progressively more right-wing. And the whole discourse about race just was propelled again right into in, in, into the, the sort of front line of public discussions. Uh, and then there was another, another factor which sort of tied into this, which is the, the unpredicted rise of genetic ancestry testing kits. So things like 23andMe and uh, Ancestry.com. And so there's this huge popular rise in... in, in understanding genetics or engaging with genetics as a subject in many ways that I find problematic, scientifically problematic. So it was like, you know, the planets aligned or misaligned perhaps. Um, and it, it felt 
that I really had little choice but to, you know, really get stuck into into the weeds of of uh, trying to help people understand the history of genetics, the history of human genetics, anthropology, and and indeed how it ties up with uh, with scientific racism. Yeah, this idea of scientific racism is somewhat of an interesting and counterintuitive one. Many people, I think, imagine racists when they think of uh, the the prototypical, stereotypical racist in their head. It's kind of an uneducated, uh, maybe a kind of dim-witted person who is uh, a bigot against another group of people. But uh, what what your book shows is that you know there's this whole area of, of scientific racism where quite brilliant highly educated, very sophisticated scientific thinkers were able to use uh, genetics and other branches of science in order to spin a narrative about uh, what race is and how it works and how, of course, the the, the white people, um, the Nordic race, as it were, were at the top. Maybe we can start with a bit of history because um, it's so crucial to this story. You mentioned uh, the role of University College London, the role of Francis Galton. Can you say a bit about those kind of early days of genetics, maybe this early inquiry into the heritability of different traits and how that, that historical picture uh, kicked off this idea of scientific racism? Sure. I mean, I, I think actually we have to go maybe a century or two earlier Sure. Before we even get to the, the the sort of much more formal study of of evolution and inheritance that happens in the nineteenth and early twentieth century, because mm-hmm. it's not so much that that the history of science is woven into the fabric of scientific racism and and colonialism uh, as well, because the two things are very very closely intertwined. But it's mm-hmm. actually at the base; it's at the foundation. Because what you see as European colonizers are beginning to expand across the world, particularly into Africa, to extract resources in all forms, including the subjugation of people and, and uh, uh, as enslaved people. As that is happening from, you know, the United Kingdom and, and um, other North European countries, we're also seeing the birth of what is sometimes fondly called the scientific revolution. We're in the age of enlightenment. And I think all of these terms are have are not without problems, um, but because it is also the age of plunder and the age of e- exploitation. And so the, what, what we see at this time is as Europeans, white Europeans are beginning to explore around the rest of the world with the intent of colonization, um, they, they are encountering people who from the rest of the world who look different to them. And as this is sort of coincident with the birth of 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 the, the sort of more formal scientific methods, if you will, that, that we 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 now enjoy, that you know the scientific revolution, as I said a second ago, we we have the the attempts to categorize people, so the attempts mm-hmm. to introduce classification, taxonomy into mm-hmm. the whole of the natural world, and that includes humans. And so, you know, I think maybe the, the most robust example of this is with Linnaeus himself, so the founding father of taxonomy, possibly the first proper biologist, the taxonomic system that we still use today in genus and species, homo sapiens, or, you know, or, or, or whatever. Now, in, in attempting to include homo sapiens into his grand scheme, the, the book was called Systema Naturae, of which I, I think it... I think it's like more than 13 volumes published during his lifetime, in which he tries to describe all living things, plants, animals. He also tries to classify rocks in this, but that didn't really work out. 
Um, he includes humans and he includes four subspecies of, of humans. And the primary determinant of, of his descriptions of um, the, 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 the four subspecies of humans is pigmentation, skin color. So there's Africanus, who have dark black skin, um, indigenous Americans, Americanus, who he describes as having red skin, Asiaticus, so people that we would now refer to as East Asians, uh, who he describes as having yellow skin, and Europaeus, who he describes as being as having white skin. Now, following on from those initial phenotypic descriptions, which are you know deeply problematic in, in and of themselves, um, given how clumsy and you know we we now know that there's more pigmentation variation within Africa than in the rest of the world put together. Mm. Um, following on from those initial descriptors you you have some pretty hardcore value judgments associated with behavior um so you know things like um behaviors being capricious people being ruled by by caprice or by uh, customs um and the the keep i don't, I don't want to get into the details of that because they're pretty offensive and i, I find it quite troubling just to even read them out sure um, but the the fact is that what we have here is a classification which is two things simultaneous, but maybe three things. One, inaccurate. Two, absolutely laden with value judgments, so completely non-scientific in that regard. And, and three, it's not merely classification, it's hierarchical. And in every single case, starting with Linnaeus, or, or in fact others, but every single attempt by scientists or pseudoscientists of, the, of this time, thinkers, philosophers, to classify humans, it, they are all hierarchical, and see if you can guess who comes top of that hierarchy. Yeah, no. The one fascinating thing about this is is recognizing just how new this idea of categorizing people based on what we maybe call race, or but is really just skin color, um, is in terms of human history. There's some super interesting research in psychology and evolutionary psychology which is is sometimes a, a dubious uh, field, but nevertheless um, suggesting that we are much more inclined to discriminate uh, or, or have prejudices against people based on, for instance, the sound of their voice. We're very good at, you know, uh, determining who's the insider versus out, out, outsider based on the way that they speak, uh, even very young, at a very young age, babies are able to do that far more than they're prejudiced against anyone based on the color of their skin. The reason being that for most of human history, no one was really encountering people of a different skin color necessarily. Whereas if you encountered someone, you know, who lived slightly farther away uh, in the UK alone, the, the sound of someone's accent could be a very telling um, indicator of like who they were um, and, and how they might relate to you. And so, like you said, this idea of even having a system whereby you would be classifying people uh, according to any sort of like race-based uh, um, system could only have arisen with this rise of kind of colonialism, travel, plunder, and this this exploration of the world where people were coming into contact with uh, you know people who did not look like them, which is a very recent thing in kind of the history of our of our species. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, there's a, there's a couple of things worth unpicking within that. The first is, as you just said, this is very recent, right? We I, I think we have such short term memories, and we don't know our own history well enough to. It takes it takes pointing it out that actually the invention of race as we currently understand it, as we currently use it as a social. Uh, way of describing people, the people of the earth, is, is really only three hundred, three or four hundred years old tops. Now right. that is not to say that people before the seventeenth century did not have 
well, two things, one bigotry, um, and and two, um, ways of differentiating between people. So, so in group, out group, which, which is very much a part of, uh, of human nature. It's just that the primary determinant is a physical characteristic of pigmentation, which becomes the basis of racial categorizations from the 17th century onwards is, as you say, really, it really is invented at at that time with one possible earlier example during Mm -hmm. the Islamic slave trade era, um, described by, um, Avicenna in, in the 12th century. Now, you know, descriptions of pigmentation in in relation to people go back to the early, the actual earliest Western texts. Um, Homer talks about pigmentation of different people in in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, Odysseus himself is described as sort of swarthy, you know, and it's, it's, there's a, um, I was almost a classicist, um, I genetics instead. Uh, But there's a, you know, there's one of the real problems in translating, um, classical literature is assuming that there is a direct correlate for uh, in contemporary language. Right. Right. And, and so while there are plenty of descriptions of pigmentation and hair color as well and hair texture, they aren't necessarily a simple one-to-one mapping of, you know, when, when Homer says Odysseus was swarthy, um, d- does that mean he had the same pigmentation as me or a Greek of that time? Or was it in reference to the fact that he was, you know, a troubled man, a difficult man. He was capricious and blah, blah, blah. It, it does contain, the Iliad contains the word Ethiops to describe sort of broadly sub-Saharan African people. And that is where Ethiopia comes from. And that literally means Ethiops. It means blackened face. Cool. So there are plenty of descriptions of pigmentation in early literature, but none of them are as significant as classifiers right. as some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, like, like language, like geography, like religion, like cultural yeah. practices. The only skin color only becomes significant really in in the the the, the age of enlightenment, the age of the age of uh, exploration, expansion, and plunder. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's this important distinction of you know people have always noticed that other people in this world uh, look differently to them in many different ways, skin color, hair color, height. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a very big difference between that and a Linnaean system of taxonomy whereby like these different groups, first of all, have like firm delineated boundaries between them, uh, and lead to some sort of hierarchical classification based on their, um, intelligence or abilities or personality or anything like that. So when we're going through the history here, we're starting with this kind of uh, classification. How does that then turn um, into uh, this kind of uh, eugenic movement about hierarchy of the races and the desire for, I don't know, the, 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 the Nordic or the white race to, to be at the top? And, and maybe we can talk now about the role of uh, Francis Galton and some others in that, in that process. Yeah, sure, sure. So, uh, you know, racism is, is or racisms, I should say, are, are less about, you know, name calling, um, which I think is what most people often assume is, is, is what is fundamentally racist and, and much more about power structures and power structures that are associated with classification of people. Um, and, and that's, that's why the notion of being white remains the top of the hierarchy in racialized uh, structural racism that, that we experience in um, up and down the Americas and Canada and in the US and, and indeed all over Europe and, and in, in London, the UK, where I am right now. Um, and so, you know, this is, 
this is pseudoscience which is being marshaled into a political ideology which is in a literal sense white supremacy not i mean not not white supremacy in the sense of how we talk about white supremacists today but it is that white people or white europeans are better and therefore uh, are entitled to subjugate the people that they encounter in, during in, in the rest of the world now fr- from you know Linnaeus onwards over the next couple of hundred years this is simply an idea which gets developed and reinforced by dozens of men of science or men of philosophy and political thinkers, um, many of whom are, you know, the, the, the founding fathers of Western thought in many ways. So it's people like Kant. Do you want me to wait for that plane to, to pass? No, it's all right. I'll just keep going. Okay. People like Kant and Voltaire and Blumenbach in, in Germany. Um, and, and all through the, the, 18th, 19th century, you've got the continual development of, of these ideas of, of hierarchical classification. You know, people like Blumenbach introduced new metrics, so it's not just reliant on skin color. Things like mm-hmm. uh, skull shape and phrenology and craniotomy become significant, what we now know are pseudoscientific terms for classifying people and thus to justify their difference and subjugation. Um, and, and then you get, you know, 1859, we have... Um, uh, the publication of the origin of species and biology is turned completely upside down by what I believe is the most single, most important book ever written. Yeah. And that changes the whole notion of how we think about heredity and, and biology and evolution and life on earth. And that includes what well, it includes humans in principle. Um, there's only one mention of humans in, in the origin, but then Darwin goes on uh, in 71, 71, 81. That sounds, that sounds right to me. Yep. So, 71. Yeah. Um, to write the descent of man well i really should know that by now i've only been talking about this stuff for 25 years that's fine <laughs> and and it's his cousin it's his, well second cousin yeah. uh, it's his half cousin right. um francis galton who um absolutely worships darwin uh, as an intellectual who picks up this idea and transfers it what transfers idea it's sort of many aspects of evolutionary theory onto humans and also the development of humans, but very much in a politicized way. Now, Galton is a, is a fascinating, deeply problematic genius character <laughs> who needs to be studied more and more and more. Um, and, and one thing that's emerged over the last few years is that this has been a core part of my academic upbringing because I was in the Galton lab and it right. was at UCL where I still teach. Um, one thing I have realized recently is that this is not universally taught. And when I did my undergraduate degree at the at UCL in the Galton, which was ninety three, um, I, I you know there was only one or two genetics courses in the whole of the UK. And now in two thousand and twenty, you know, it is a absolutely standard part of every single biology course in every single further education establishment on earth. And I think my suspicion is, I'd like to quantify this, is that Galton is not as well known as I had presumed he was right? Um, with that huge bias in place that, uh, you know, I was only two or three generations directly descended from him himself. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway, so he, he develops these, uh, Galton, Galton, apart from being a scientific genius and the creator of many of the statistical processes that we continue to use to this day, and a founding father of 
psychology and meteorology and forensics and a debunker of phrenology um, because the data wasn't good enough for him um, and you know effectively the founding father of human genetics he was also unequivocally a, a, a colossal racist so yeah. racist even for his time everyone was more racist in the victorian era it's it's useful that he was second uh, half cousins with darwin who whilst not 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 being angelic in his expression of uh, about his expressions about people in the rest of the world was an abolitionist was incredibly liberal even for that time and in contrast you've got galton who who was um yeah a full on white supremacist and, and who truly believed in in the inheritance of genius of men his 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 i, I guess his most well-known work is is on the inheritance of genius and it's a it's a strange i presume you've read it right um i have yeah hereditary genius yeah it's uh it's an i mean the the most fascinating thing about it is the whole point of that book is looking at you know the children of imminent people and seeing are those people imminent you know and impressive themselves and so the inevitable conclusion is just you know imminence is heritable uh it's yeah. and the, the level of detail in that book and in all of Galton's work is truly astounding. Yes. I mean, the guy really cared about what he was doing and had an attention to detail and, you know, kind of studying, I don't know, every imminent family in Britain and, and every poor family. And really, you know, he did, he did his due diligence, uh, ill, ill founded though his motives were the guy, you can't, you can't fault him for working hard to, uh, to try to attempt to amass this data set, but really an unusual read. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and it's it's admirable. It, it's it's sort of it's, it's impressive how thorough his science is, right? Whilst, whilst never managing to get over the fact <laughs> that, that his his extreme prejudice is actually driving his his yeah. as you say diligence, incredible diligence. And you know that you know the, the families he's analysing in this in hereditary genius are <laughs> politicians and yeah, exactly and, and actors even. And I don't think there are any women in there whatsoever. I may be wrong about that, but um, it, you know, it's it's such an incredibly skewed, <laughs> prejudicial data set on which he bases this the, the, this whole sort of thesis. But but from this, from this, and, and I'm not I'm not a Galton apologist. I think we we need to be capable of recognizing incredible work that that can, needs to be continued to be studied and whose intellectual uh, uh, um, intellectual influence continues to this day whilst recognizing that they also were terrible terrible people yeah um whose motivations may well have been terrible as well and, and in fact we see that following on from galton um in his disciples who are people like carl pearson um mm -hmm. another absolute founding father of statistics mm -hmm. um uh, who was the first galton professor at ucl and then the second galton professor was ronald fisher uh, Fisher, who, who I would place in probably the top five most significant biologists of, of all time, mm -hmm. um, who was also uh, an astonishing racist and ardent eugenicist. Yeah. And, and so this, whilst, whilst being so fundamental to the revolu rev revolution in biology that happens in the 1920s and 1930s, mostly centered around, around UCL, you know, a, a legacy of which I, I suppose pride is not quite the right word. I think it's the traje tra trajectory of, of history is what we should be proud of in, in 
evolutionary genetics and and um, and the study of these subjects um, rather rather than the history itself. And I, you know, you're a historian. One of the key principles in in modern historian in modern history is not to judge people by contemporary standards. Right. Whilst at the same time, I, I think that sometimes gets used as a get out clause for not actually mm-hmm. scrutinizing brilliant people from history who also turned out to be um, ter- terrible people. Yeah. Um, because you can contemporize their views. You can compare the views of Galton to Darwin or to politicians of that time and say Galton was more racist and more of a eugenicist than, than Darwin. Fisher was more racist and more a eugenicist than Haldane, um, who, who was also in my top five of the most significant mm-hmm. parts of, of, of all time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much public discussion at the, mo- at the moment about the value of universities and reassessing our own troubled pasts. And I do think we have to lead the way in being honest and overt and shining a light uh, on the, people like Galton, people like Fisher and, and, and Pearson and say that their intellectual contribution to our understanding of the universe is unmatched. And there is, you, there's no way we can deny that whilst at the same time saying that doesn't mean we have to celebrate these people as individuals because they also not only were racist in a time of racism, but, but many of them had views which were extreme even for their time. Yeah. One thing that's, uh, there's so much that you just said that we can, that we can get into. Um, there are two things that are, that, that maybe I'll just, uh, touch on a little bit. One is just recognizing in terms of when you're talking about reckoning with, you know, what is the role of science in the universities and who are these people who came before us? Uh, like you said, just a couple generations ago, scientifically, right? This is not the deep past we're talking about. These people are very much alive in terms of the the methods that they introduced to science being still very much part of our kind of our, our, our enterprise and our techniques. You know, so much of statistics was founded uh, by by these folks, uh, Galton, Pearson and Fisher in particular, and our statistical techniques uh, bear their names. And y- y- when you start asking the question, well, what, you know, so many statistical tests are about telling the difference between two groups as being significant or not. And you got to think to yourself, well, what was the original purpose of that? What were these groups that we were trying to uh, discriminate between and tell if they're different? Obviously, we now use those statistical techniques to determine, you know, groups that are different in, uh, I don't know, a drug trial or um, some genetic uh, scan. But back in the day, you know, the things we were trying to determine the difference between were, you know, group characteristics like intelligence and height and, and personality. Those are the initial kind of roles being served by these statistical techniques with the ultimate aim of using this statistical knowledge to do eugenics, to to um, have, you know, a process of, of controlled breeding and reproduction and ensure that only the best people uh, reproduce so that in the in the eyes of folks like Galton, this kind of uh, tree of eminent genius could continue unabated and untempered. Um, so even, for instance, this idea of regression, Galton introduced regression in first in the sense first meaning regression to the mean. That is to say, when people are super, super tall, 
their children will likely be a little bit less tall because, you know, statistical values are always kind of tending toward the mean value. So that's where regression comes from. And the whole point of studying, you know, at people's height over time, it was kind of this detour en route to studying people's, you know, intelligence over time so that only the most intelligent people could, could you know, uh, have children with the other most intelligent people. And so that is just one of many, many examples. Uh, and that doesn't mean, you know, our statistics are now like invalid or illegitimate, right? These are mathematical techniques that have important uses. But I think, like you say, there, you know, there is a role. I guess maybe I'll just ask you, you know, this kind of things that I'm talking about, about the, the you know, the, the eugenic roots of statistics. And for what it's worth, you know, if you're looking for eugenic roots of academic disciplines, yes, you can go to genetics and statistics. But, you know, these things lurk in dark, dark corners. And if you go to environmentalism or conservation, you know, uh, what exactly were they trying to conserve and for whom? You Once you start asking questions like that, it can get, it can get, uh, um, yeah. you know, pretty disturbing pretty quickly. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess, wh- what is... Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, go, go and ask the question. I, yeah, I, I have much to say on this matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I was just going to ask you, what is the role of kind of disentangling? You know, if in the present, for instance, maybe we believe in the present, you know, genetics is, a, you know, people of all races and genders study genetics now. It's not a racist field. We know eugenics is bad. What is the role, I guess, of, of studying this history and, and, and talking about these things? And what can we learn from kind of digging into these, you know, kind of dark, dark roots of, 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 our, of our scientific endeavor, the scientific endeavor that you and I and so many people love and think is amazing and beautiful in a wonderful way of learning about the world. Yes, yes. Well, it's the process that is wonderful. And that's, that's, that is the strength of science rather than as a sort of monolithic thing in, in an, and of, it, of itself. I, I mean, we, we, we study this history in order to recognize, well, partly because it's fundamentally interesting, partly, as you say, because this stuff is only 100 years old. Um, so, you know, astrophysics dates back to Babylonians who, who accurately clocked at least six of the planets. Whereas, and, and I know we've been talking about inheritance for the whole of human history, but but as a as a sort of science, as a robust academic discipline, it really is a, a century uh, a century old at, at its tops. So this is not ancient history at all. I, I am I, I was taught by people who were taught by Ronald Fisher. I know Fisher's last last living PhD mm. student, and right. Fisher was taught by Golson. Right, you know, these that's not particularly unique to me because the academic family trees branch all over the place. But the point is, I'm two generations away from these people in the actual locations where where it happened. So, you know, we need to understand the techniques because we still use them. We need to understand um, the the history partly because it's interesting, but partly also because it reveals something which I think is very important, which is that there is an absolute reflection of the structural racism that we see in society with mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. And I think that most scientists don't realize this because it doesn't come up very often. But right. it comes up very overtly when you start talking about contemporary data sets of, for example, um, human genomes within for, for studies such as genome-wide association studies, where actually we just know so much more about white Europeans than we do about mm-hmm. anyone else on Earth because that's where we've done the studies. Now, exactly. it's so obvious to point this out now because that's where the data sets are. But this does, in fact, skew the science, right? So if you want to be, forget the politics of it, forget the, forget the, the fact that having diversity in labs is, is a good thing. Um, if you just want to do the best possible science, then you need to have diversity in your data sets and you need to recognize that our data sets are not pure and simple because they were collected by people and people are never pure and they're not mm-hmm. simple, right? And so, you know, you get sort of more right of center people saying things like, well, you know, 
the data is the data. It's not the data can't be biased. It can't be prejudiced because it's just data. Well, that's I, I just think that's fundamentally incorrect. And and whilst that whilst it's a sort of noble aim of science that our descriptions of of reality are absolutely objective. As long as science is done by people, they cannot be. And I think it's really important that we recognize that the the roots of our field have structural racism built into them in a way that is very obvious if you're talking about Dalton or Fisher or, or, you know, all of those guys at at the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, and, and we haven't even mentioned the people in the States who are influenced by this, nor the political ramifications of people like Dalton and Pearson, which in their most extreme cases are, are, you know, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to recognize that this, the, these structural biases are built into our, the, the culture of science in such a way that they still resonate today. We've only really started looking at the genomes of African people in the last five years, which is a, an absurdity because mm-hmm. almost all human evolution occurred in Africa. There was more genetic diversity, more differences between people within Africa than the rest of the world. And we will have a far, far deeper and greater and richer understanding of human evolution and human variation if we spend much more time studying the, the, the genomes of people within Africa. Um, and yet, for the, for the first hundred years of genetics as a field, it's just not, some, it's not something we, we bothered with at all. So we, we know a lot about Europeans and we don't know much about people of the rest of the world. The fact that we're aware of it is great because it means we're fixing it. But right. You know why these structural biases exist in the first place is important to both recognize and, and to and, and to tackle. And and who yeah. knows? In a hundred years' time, you know, someone like you and someone like me will be having a discussion on some other format, um, in in which they'll be saying, "Yeah, and you remember those guys at the beginning of the twenty first century in the era of the Human Genome Project, and h- how deeply did they screw up?" Um, you know this data set or whatever characteristic they're looking at or, you know, understanding of intelligence or behavioral genetics, they had no idea what they were doing. And yet it became the policy that would determine the 21st century. That is the process of science. I, I yeah. think that scientists need to know their history much better than, than we, we do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is, you're, you're preaching to the choir. That is, uh, that, that is my life's mission. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. And I look forward to speaking in, uh, in a in a hundred years by uh, by telepathy about uh, how much we screwed up uh, a, 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 in this year, um, maybe uh, well. First of all, I just want to touch on one thing you mentioned, uh, which is a super important part of this story, which is that while a lot of these ideas do originate uh, in the UK, as we mentioned, they kind of get shipped over to the United States, where. Um, many, you know, thinkers take this kind of very intellectual, science, pseudoscientific form of uh, racism and statistics, eugenics. And in the United States, it really gets turned into full-fledged kind of policy and law, extremely coercive sterilization and immig- anti-immigration laws, um, you know, a, a truly disturbing history that that I would recommend people uh, look into more. We can't really talk about it too much because we have a lot, lot more to cover. Um, but folks like Madison Grant, Henry Fairfield Osborne, uh, Samuel Morton, um, yeah, people, uh, people who really most people have not heard of, but were true luminaries kind of uh, in, in American history and, and extremely uh, popular and influential folks in their time. And we're kind of only learning, uh, a lot of us are only learning about these people as we kind of think about why is there a statue to this person, you know, on the Princeton University campus or, or, or yeah. something like that. 
And we have to reckon with, okay, is are these the people we want to be, you know, memorializing? And then it was from there that Nazi Germany uh, was influenced. So there's kind of this progression from the like British intellectuals to the American enactors to the to the Germans who really took it to 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 a place that many of us are familiar with, uh, and that is obviously represents kind of the the lowest of the low in terms of uh, human terribleness. Um, yeah. So that, there, there's some really interesting nuances within this as well, which I find fascinating. And you as a historian who specializes in eugenics, I know you, you know this stuff much, much better than I. But the fact that this idea is sort of formalized in central London by Galton and, and others, and Galton sets up the eugenics laboratory on Gower Street, um, which is where UCL is, and it becomes an intrinsically linked with, with UCL uh, forever. Um, but the fact that it is eugenics is not a it's not the toxic idea that we think of it today when it becomes formalized, it's an attractive idea. And I I think one of the really interesting things is that there are, there are differences between the histories of the UK and the America and America, the USA, which are not insignificant in this, in this conversation, because uh, whilst Galton was a, a very pronounced racist, as was Pearson, as was Fisher, when you read their works, they're, they're, when when they're talking about eugenics, they are they do seem to be primarily concerned not with the elimination of racial categories of people, but more they're focused on class based uh, eugenics policies. That um, uh, that there's this perpetual idea that um, that poor people are reproducing at a far greater rate than middle-class or upper-class people. So you take Fisher, for example, and in his incredibly important seminal text, The Genetical Theory of Evolution, the first half of which remains some of the best scientific um, discourse that I've ever read, the second half of which is this bizarre, rambling diatribe about about eugenics policies and how they should be implemented and, you know, sort of lamenting the fall of the Roman Empire because... Hmm. The, the 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 powerful and the rich didn't have enough kids, but the, the, the poverty stricken had too many, and that that's the decline of civilizations. So there's a very much class based angle to eugenics, at least in the UK. And of course, we never had a eugenics policy. Mm-hmm. So so close in uh, 1912, where there was a, um, a a clause in a in a particular bill that was put before the UK Parliament which was removed by Josiah Wedgwood um, uh, and never made it to policy. Hmm. So we never had official, official eugenics policies in this country, whereas in many countries in, in South America, in Sweden, um, and particularly in the States, as you say, they had aggressive actual policies. Now, the, the German thing, again, is also you know, profoundly interesting. German people set up the, their, their version of national eugenics laboratories after visiting London and seeing what Galton and his descendants were, were doing. But mm-hmm. yes, as you said, then they become significantly influenced by the enacted policies mm-hmm. of, of various states. So I think it was 31 states had, um, had eugenics policies. Now, in, in the States, a country founded on, on racist principles via transatlantic slavery, Mm-hmm. A, a country that has never resolved its its racial history, and and we we see we are seeing this more than ever in, in the in the year twenty twenty. Um, uh, their eugenics policies are are much more overtly racist than than I think the discussions of eugenics potential eugenics policies were in the yeah. in the UK. Um, the, a, a, a figurehead of the female reproductive rights of 
uh, for, for women is Mary Stopes in this mm-hmm. country. And the Mary Stopes clinics are all over the world and, and they provide what I regard as essential, important um, reproductive advice and action um, uh, in, in the form of abortions for women. And, and so we think of Mary Stopes as being associated with, with uh, empowerment of, of women by giving them domain over their own bodies. Mary Stokes' interest in, in reproductive rights of women was because she was a, another massive eugenicist mm-hmm. who really wanted to exterminate the Irish in London, who, who, who tended to be amongst the lower classes and poverty-stricken, uh, but also Jews um, and uh, Prussians. You know, she was a deeply racist woman. And again, you know, what, what a strange thing that we sort of celebrate her in the sense that she emancipated women um, and, and gave them reproductive rights was part of that movement in the 1920s. Um, but her motivations were uh, the extermination of, of whole groups of people. Yeah, well, there's a similar example with uh, Margaret Sanger, the, the kind of American version of Mary Stopes, right? The founder of Planned Parenthood, who was uh, uh, equally a eugenicist. And, 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 and yeah, it's, it's similar to what we were talking about with statistics, you know, asking this question of, well, why were they inventing methods for comparing groups? In this case of um, uh, providing abortions and, and other uh, reproductive health services, it's, well, why were they so concerned about, you know, certain women not, not giving birth? Um, of course, we now, you know, recognize that that's uh, an essential health service. But at the time, you know, uh, it's it's worth discussing some of the some of the other motives and how, like you said, those are kind of systemic and uh, and baked into the system. Another thing I wanted to touch on, which you know, there's so much here, we 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 could be here for hours, um, is uh, just how much of this intellectualizing was served the sole purpose, uh, not in the 20th century, but in the 19th and 18th, of justifying the Atlantic slave trade. Right, uh, intellectuals. Uh, need reasons to do things. And if you are, uh, you know, um, a person who is maybe a bit suspicious of the idea of buying and selling, you know, human beings and shipping them across the world in order to to work for free on plantations, uh, if you read a book that persuasively made the case that there was a hierarchy of races and that yours was at the top, um, then that might be, you know, reason enough for you to be able to participate in this thing perhaps not uh, guilt-free, but at least you could, you know, justify your work as being in some way backed up by the, by the science or the pseudoscience. And so it's fascinating to see just how much of this stuff is explicitly designed with the intention of, of, you know, convincing, uh, convincing people that this, that this horrific enterprise is okay. Um, But, but, you know, you, I, I understand that there is a you. You are dedicating a, a future book to the to, to the study of a lot of these questions specifically. I want to turn back to this to the topic of the book that we are talking about, yeah. which is uh, how to argue with a racist. So maybe we can get out of history for a second and talk about contemporary stuff and uh, the actual science. Um, well, let me let me chip in, Matthew. Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, please, please. You know what, what you just said. That is, is yeah, is, that's, you're completely right. And the, the thing is that you can't separate the history from the contemporary. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we see in, so the, in, in the justification, the pseudoscientific justification of people being different and inferior, and therefore that is a justification for subjugation. As part of that, you begin to see the roots of the stereotypes that are the fundamental tenets of the racism that, that we, we see today. They're right, they're baked into what Linnaeus is saying. They're baked into what Voltaire is, is saying. When, when, they, when, when you say these pe- this group of people are, 
fickle or capricious and less intelligent or lazy, but they're strong, um, then that, that, that makes them both, de- both dehumanized and useful as a commodity, if, if you want to justify the transatlantic slave trade for, for in this specific example. And now in this, in this, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the current era where there isn't um, enslavement um, and um, the, the rights of humans are, are universal, the, the racialized mythologies, the racialized stereotypes that people still cling to, and I'm not talking about white supremacists here, I'm talking about normal people who mm-hmm. are non-racist, perhaps not anti-racist, but still harbor these views, but they are fundamentally rooted in the same pseudoscience that was first outlined in the 17th and 18th centuries. And, and I think that, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about sport. And I, I, I love sports. I, I love watching it and I love playing it. And, and I, but I recognize that not everyone does. Um, and, and therefore, I, I had to persuade my editor to, that I was going to devote 10,000 words to sport and race because mm-hmm. I just thought, well, you know, this is not core. This is a separate book for sports mm. fans. But I think it's really, really important in this discussion because it, you, you see, sports is one of the ways that we see the behaviors of people from the rest of the world at extreme abilities. And that's why we celebrate the Olympics and we celebrate, you know, the, the, the great entertainment that comes in international competitive sports or, or national competitive sports. Yeah. Um, but sports is massively, mass, massively racialized, and mm-hmm. the stereotypes that sit within there are are completely they're, they're sort of overt and accepted, and, and and again we keep using that phrase baked into our culture. So the idea that um, African Americans or Black people are more athletic um, and uh, better at short distance running sports because of their dominance in in, in explosive energy running like such as in the Olympics, 100 meters or long distance in, in, in terms of the Kenyans and Ethiopian dominance in, in endurance sports uh, or in various aspects of both basketball and um, American football and so on. There is this many, many people think just intuitively black people are better at sports. Now that, that if there is a biological basis to that, well, there isn't. I, I mean, I could justify that mm-hmm. in many ways. I go into great depth to explain why that is not the case. Mm-hmm. But the, the physicality of Africans and African Americans is a key idea that is sewn in place during the during the history in order to justify the in, enslavement of people. These people are strong and less intelligent, which means that they are both useful and and um, we, we can commodify them. We, we can. Uh, subjugate them in exactly the same way the stereotypes about for example jewish people being well good with money and intelligent are these are these are used to justify um uh the the the, the holocaust in in nazi germany the exactly mm-hmm. the language that is used to both other and create enemies uh or, or, or use use these these sorts of ideas to to justify persecution of, of Jewish people. They are smarter than us and better with money than us, and therefore they are a threat, and that is why they need to be eradicated. Now, but neither the, the data that supports those ideas is often worth scrutinizing. And I, I do some of it in the book, because actually it, it turns out to be just simply not true. Um, mm-hmm. The period in which Jewish people were allowed to lend money was incredibly short in, historically and and was was basically outlawed under... Um, most Ashkenazi Jewish policies for, for 
most of history. So where that comes, you know, we're, we're as much influenced by the characters like Shylock and in, in Shakespeare, um, more, much more than history itself. Um, and so, you know, you, you, he can quite easily get to the point where you say, well, I haven't seen a white guy in the hundred meters final <laughs> since 1980. Um, and there are a lot of Jewish people in academia and in um, leading orchestras and solo violinists and chess grandmasters. And so these seem like good data sets to say, well, wait a minute, maybe there is something biological about Ashkenazi Jews or something about that, something that happened to West Africans and their descendants during the transatlantic slavery, which, which means that what we see today is the biological evolution of these characteristics. Now, they're just not true. They're just, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, there's simply no genetic data in the 21st century which supports those ideas. If you do see greater disproportionate success in certain cultural or racialized groups, such as Jewish people or African Americans in certain sports, they are far, far better explained by cultural phenomena mm-hmm. than genetic. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's, when it comes to, you know, you, you mentioned the title of the book, How to Argue with the Racist. It's, it's, it's hard to persuade people that their experience is wrong. Mm. It, it's hard to say, you know, well, I, I know that, that basketball is dominated and has been for 30 years by African-Americans, but there isn't anything fundamental about African-Americans that makes them better at explosive energy sports. In fact, it was Jews who dominated um, uh, basketball for most of the 20th century and indeed boxing. Um, but we have such a sort of superficial understanding of our own history or shallow understanding of our own history. And we're so bound to the, the way that these stereotypes is baked into our culture that it's really difficult to shake them. The, the, one of the studies that I cite in the book, which was from a couple of years ago now, documents 3,000 comments in top media about elite athletes. And in the vast majority of cases where a black athlete was being discussed, the references were to their physicality and their ancestry, right? And in the vast majority of cases where a white elite athlete was being discussed, the references in the same proportions were to their industriousness uh, and their intelligence and their, their, their hard work. And you, you, this, I, I've ruined sporting events for, for many people by telling them this, because as soon as you have it pointed out to you, every time it gets mentioned, you just it's like a beacon and you see it. And I think that's an interesting battleground because, you know, we, we've all got an uncle or an aunt or a dad who watches sport and says very casually, you know, in, in, an, in a way that isn't intended to be offensive because everyone wants to be smarter or faster or more muscly or whatever, but says, you know, black kids are better at football, soccer, I mean, in this country. Or, mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. Well, they're better at dancing. You know, I can't dance. It's, it's terrible. I'm white. I can't dance. Right? And you go, yeah, that's cool because dancing is cool and um, running fast is, is, is impressive or being able to shoot hoops is impressive. But what those things do, well, one is they're not correct. There's no biological basis for them. But the second thing is they do, they simply reinforce the structural racism that has existed for 300 years that, that initially was used to justify slavery and, and today is just a reinforcement of the hegemony of, 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 of society that, that we exist in. So I think it's, you know, we, we need to battle these things. We, we need to be equipped with the data and the understanding to say, dad, you know what? That isn't how it works. Yeah. 
what, what Adam, you're, you're, you're sending me for a tizzy here. I mean, there's, there's so much to say. There's so much to say. Um, uh, one, one, just to touch on the thing you said at the end, which is that, you know, the nice thing here is that like science is on our side is right. Is that, is that, is that, you know, so much of racism and is, is just rooted in straight up like factual inaccuracy or, or a lack of understanding of how genetics works or how DNA works or how culture works or how history works and the lack of recognition of, you know, how much of the fates of humans is an extraordinarily complicated thing that to boil it down to, you know, black people are better at basketball or whatever it is, is just reductive and simplistic. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, th- th- that's kind of a nice feature of this is that by reading books like yours and, and studying history and understanding how these things work, we can actually, you know, um, have an informed opinion, but there, there's, there's, there's so much here. One thing I do want to mention is, uh, there's a, there's an amazing key and peel skit. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but, uh, the, the um, key and peel are, are like anchors on a, on a, on a oh, sports yeah. uh, a show. And there's a white yeah. guest, you know, and they're analyzing all these, uh, football, American football plays and, you know, it, and they're showing uh, various pictures of players on the screen and this commentator's going, you know, to all the black players, his raw strength, you know, his, his, his beastly abilities and to all the white players, you know, his, 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 his incredible intelligence, his acuity. And it, 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 I mean, it gets more and more absurd to the point where the black players they're showing are the quarterbacks, the playmakers, the passers, you know, the really, the really kind of intelligent players and the white players are just kind of these big brutes uh, whose sole purpose is to stand there and push another guy. And nevertheless, that's, that's the analysis, you know, that, um, that, that they're giving. Jordan, it's a weird coincidence. I'm sitting here. It's so hot today. I'm just wearing a T-shirt. I'm actually wearing yeah. a Jordan Peele T-shirt, oh, yeah. which is from his second film, uh, Us, the Hands Across America one. But that his first film, which I actually mentioned in the book, yeah, um, is it, it, but that's fundamentally what it's about. It's about the fetish, the fetishization of black right. bodies. Um, that's uh, that that. But yeah, I mean, just just like you described, when you when you look at a film at a um, when you look at a sport like American football, which requires you know hu- a huge range of different physicalities and different skill sets, you see a very very weird distribution of of um, uh, of different ra- racialized peoples in there. So so for example, you know the linebackers always tend to the, the runners always tend to be sprinters and they tend to be black. Quarterbacks always tend to be white. Um, in in the in the linebackers, the linesmen, there's a 50-50 split between mm-hmm. black and white, apart from in the center position where it's 75-25. Now, like when you start digging into the stats of sports, as I do like to do, yeah. uh, they immediately become, well, racialized versions of these based on biology to explain those stats just immediately become nonsensical. They, they simply don't make any sense whatsoever if you're thinking that there is some biological basis for the, for these types of characteristics. And, you, and it should be so obvious to say that because, you know, if there's a genetic basis to, to running 100 meters and that, is just, that justifies the fact that we haven't seen one since, we haven't seen a white guy in, the, in these races since 1980, well, where are, the, where are the black sprint cyclists or squash players? Right. Or, or 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 badminton players, all sports that require similar levels of of uh, explosive energy. Um, the the fact that there have only been two people of African of recent African descent, both African Americans, in the entire history of the finals of short distance swimming event swimming events in in the Olympics, 
makes no sense. I mean, you cannot explain this disparity using biology. And when mm-hmm. small America, this is one of the subjects which I think this genuinely makes me angry. I mean, this, is, this all should make people angry, but this, this is something that I find particularly pernicious, which is that, well, the stats in America are that something like 70% of African-Americans don't swim compared to uh, 30% of white European-Americans um, who don't swim. And there has been this long-standing myth that this, is, this can be best explained by bone density, that black people have higher density bones and therefore they sink, right? They have a buoyancy factor which is lacking, um, or which is less than in white Europeans. And this is why you see far fewer African-American swimmers at any level, you know, at, at, at ground level, all the way up to the top of the Olympics. Right. Well, the first thing is that that, that myth comes from some pretty misunderstood osteoporosis uh, actuary data, um, which which I, I get into a little bit in the book, but but it's it's just it's just not correct to say that African Americans have more dense bones. The second thing is having more dense bones and not being able to float, or that being an Im- impediment to swimming, is an abs- as absurd as it sounds. Yeah. But the third thing is, and I, this is the bit where I begin to get angry about this. This has become such a, a persistent stereotype that many black people believe this. And, and I know black people here, black British people, friends who have said this to me, um, uh, you know, seriously educated people saying, well, you know, uh, uh, a friend who's uh, British from Nigerian descent who says, well, you know, we don't swim because we, we sink. I'm like, dude, you can't say that. You're a doctor um, because it's not true. But, but when Swim America surveyed, you tried to account for these disparities that they see in America by surveying um, uh, people. African American people, the the reasons for not swimming in African Americans are all socioeconomic, and all so obviously socioeconomic. So they're things. Yes. Like, well, even after segregation, swimming pools were built in white white areas. Mm-hmm. So so effectively, segregation continues. Um, socioeconomic in that most swim lessons will be uh, extracurricular, so they actually have a cost associated with them. Um, no role models. We talked about that. Only two two black swimmers in the history of the Olympics. Hmm. The most important one, right, well, not, not, not having parents that swim, not having friends that swim was number two. And the most important one was the reason that um, people don't swim of any color or race is that they don't get taught how to swim. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that is the, that's the single biggest factor in whether you swim or not. It's whether you were taught how to swim. Right? So that is a purely social thing. There, there aren't some people who can swim biologically and some people who can't. Everyone who can swim was taught how to swim. Right. It sounds ridiculous to have to say that, but the fact of the matter is that the death by drowning rate for African-American children between the ages of 8 and 14 is three times higher than it is for European-descended uh, kids in America. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of, you know, it's a stereotype, a racialized stereotype, which is an, uh, effectively a representation of structural racism in a domain which makes it literally lethal. Yeah. And, and I think that's, it's such a powerful thing to say mm-hmm. and, and so frustrating that, you know, a sort of absurd, like buoyant, biological buoyancy factor is more readily relied upon than the fact that people who swim have been taught how to swim. 
Yeah. I'm reminded of, of, of so many other areas where people turn to, you know, genetic explanations to explain phenomena that are so clearly just better explained by through, you know, the fact of, of history. Um, and like you mentioned, segregation. I mean, even if black people in America wanted to be able to swim, the opportunity to be able to do that was just so, so unavailable relative to their white counterparts for decades and decades and, and continuing into the present day. Right. Uh, there's a great movement right now. Um, uh, that I've seen very active on Twitter about um, black people exploring nature. And for so long, um, th- this idea of, you know, going on hikes or going camping was mm-hmm. black people were explicitly excluded. If you look at the history of the conservation or environmental uh, movements, these were about, you know, preserving America's beautiful landscapes uh, and, you know, and keeping uh, them them pure and white away from the indigenous or um, African-American or immigrant populations. Right. This was our beautiful American heritage. So it's not just that, you know, oh, uh, black people are less interested in swimming or not good at swimming or not interested in hiking or whatever it is. It's that, uh, like you said, it's it's baked into the system that that these groups were explicitly excluded. Uh, and so to reach for a biological, you know, or genetic explanation for those kinds of phenomena is like very perverse when, you know, there's such a clear other story. And, and that applies as well. You know, it's interesting because what you're talking about are maybe what we'd call maybe positive stereotypes. People would say like, well, what's wrong with me believing that black people are better at running or playing basketball because or jumping high because those are very positive things or as you said dancing or playing music or whatever it is because those are good things you know it's good to be able to be good at basketball and jump high and play the saxophone Uh, but the problem with that is that the exact same logic that is used to explain those stereotypes can then be flipped on its head to explain why people are receiving poor SAT scores or yeah. uh, doing not doing well in school. So these even these you know uh, positive stereotypes can can just you flip them on their head and all of a sudden that's the kind of more classic uh, racism that that we're used to uh, in, in, when we talk about discrimination. So really, like you say, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you talking about this because when you bring it into clear relief with the swimming example, it really you really realize kind of. Uh, how how yeah how kind of deep seated this this illogic is? Well, we're living through it right now. I think that you know it's such an obvious example with COVID that you know from March to the the edition that you've got, which which came out last week, um, the the UK version came out in February just before all this you know the world turned upside down. Um, so it's got a it's got a new introduction. It's got a new essay at the beginning about the racialization of COVID and and some reference to the Black Lives Matter and the murder of of George Floyd. Um, COVID was immediately racialized in, in two ways. The first was that the, it's, it's provenance. So, you know, the fact that it came from China meant that people started identifying it, started calling it the Chinese virus, which in, a, in of itself, as, as Trump himself said, well, it comes from China, I'm going to call it the Chinese virus. What about the Spanish flu? Actually, the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu because during the First World War, Spain hadn't embargoed its press. It wasn't censoring its, its press. And so Spain was the first country to start reporting the fact that this pandemic was, was emerging. We don't actually know the origin of, of the Spanish flu in, in 1918. Um, it may have come from Kansas, from military base, from eating chickens. It may have come from France. We don't really know. But it's called the Spanish flu because the Spanish were reporting on it. So it immediately becomes racialized by saying it comes from China. I'm talking about COVID now, obviously, and and I'm sorry to go on about Trump, um, but, but but you know, he, calling it the Chinese virus is the thin end of his racist wedge. Sure. 
that disease. And I don't, I don't want to re- repeat the, the other much more racialized terms he uses. But, you know, there's, there were so many race, racist attacks on Chinese American people and Korean American people, because racism is, is fairly non is sort of indiscriminate in its, in its bigotry. In, in America and all over the world, there was a kid in, from my university, from UCL, who was beaten up on Oxford Street um, in February. Um, uh, th- there have been so many that it has its own Wikipedia page. So race, racialized attacks on people of East Asian descent uh, as a result of the current COVID uh, pandemic. So that, that, was, that was the first way it was racialized. But the second way is, is, is much more in line with what we've just been talking about, which is the the sort of desperation that people have in trying to explain things using a genetic or biological explanation, when in fact social factors are, are probably a much better explanation. So COVID, the, the data started coming in in March, which was that in the UK, Black and Asian people seem to be much more susceptible to both infection and death. And in America, it was it, we had the sort of the same stat uh, but including um, Hispanic or Latino ex people as well, and so immediately people started saying, "Well, what is it? What is biologically similar about these people that means that they are more susceptible to to this this particular infection?" Well, that is a weird categorization of people, anyway. I mean that 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 doesn't make any sense from a biological point of view, as, as far as we can tell. Um, all it serves to do is to say white people and other people, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the other people who are more susceptible to this disease. Um, there were t- attempts to explain it using vitamin D metabolism, which I think there is a, a sort of slightly interesting potential thread, which might have some sort of molecular biological um, inference associated with it. But the fact of the matter is that those groups of people are, are racialized medically anyway um, because of socioeconomic reasons, because they tend to live in urban areas where infectious diseases spread more readily because they tended to be in key worker positions and so were less likely to isolate because they tend to live statistically in multi-generational families with older people for whom the death rate was far greater because they're more vulnerable and so they're much more likely to, to get infected. All of these reasons are, are so social or, or cultural or socioeconomic. And the reason we can say that with confidence is because we know it, right? We know this. Not We, we knew this 10 years ago before COVID, before, before the current pandemic, because this, these are standard racializations that occur within medicine for social reasons. And yet, you know, as soon as the data started coming out, I, I started getting messages saying, isn't this, doesn't this demonstrate the biological reality of, of race? Or isn't there something biological about um, these groups of people and their susceptibility? Well, I mean, there is a, I, I want to, it's, it's worth stressing this point. I'm not a blank slatist at all. People are different around the world. People have different genetic makeups. We, we, we are physically different in, in, in certain ways. And we can, we can see those things both with our eyes and, and, and in our genomes. None of those differences align with our folk taxonomies of race. And we, we've known that for decades. The classic example is sickle cell anemia, which is characterized as a black disease, but it's not a black disease. It's a disease associated with ancestry in areas of, uh, of endemic malaria because sickle cell trait is protective against, against malarial infection and sickle cell disease is, is, is a consequence of that, the cost of that. So, you know, we know about the differences between people and 
how they relate to the racialization of, of diseases. We know, we know these things very well. Do they align with, with racial taxonomies? No, they do not. Are they important? Yes, they are. Are they, in this case, is it, are they more important than the socioeconomic factors, which, which go a long way to explain the, the huge disparities in infection and death rates? No, they, they simply don't. We, we could fix those, those disparities with policy, not, not, with, not with genetics. There was, there was one study about um, the, the, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, in fact, mm-hmm. about the relative infant mortality rates between African-Americans and white, white European-descended Americans, which is far greater in African-Americans. And there was, it's only a couple of studies which show this, but, but one I thought was enormously significant was there's one place in America where racial, where opportunity or exposure to, you know, not exposure to, access to medicine is not racialized. And that is in the military. And mm. guess what? The difference between um, infant mortality rates in, in black military African-Americans is compared to white African-Americans. It's non-existent. It mm-hmm. doesn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know, it's frustrating. This <laughs> yeah, I- I wonder if we can go a little bit deeper into into just this question of like what does race even mean? We were talking about this idea of black and African American. You know, these concepts have a social meaning in the sense that um, there are cultural groups within America and within other countries around the world who identify, um, you know, culturally with a group of people and might use the label black or African American, but maybe genetically or, or medically, um, yeah. D- you know, we use folk categorizations, as you said, to classify different races. But in terms of how our still quasi Linnaean uh, conception of race as it exists today in the world, you know, we call people, I don't know, Caucasian or white or uh, Hispanic, Latinx. Do these actually correspond to anything real in terms of uh, the genome? Or are these just kind of convenient social inventions that we've, you know, used to categorize our social reality, but have no, no, no substantive basis in, in biology. Well, I, as ever in, in biology, it's a bit of both. Right. I mean, we, we've got so good at, at genetics that we can, with, with a, a pretty fair degree of accuracy, predict ancestral origins for, for people based on, on their, on their genomes. Now that just to go back to that earlier point that I said, these don't correlate well, certainly not perfectly, but not even particularly well with the, the sort of traditional groupings of, of uh, the, the, as you say, quasi-Linnaean racial taxonomies of five groups of people. I mean, you said Caucasian there. In, in genetics, we're trying desperately hard not to use the word Caucasian anymore because it doesn't even, it doesn't make historical or scientific sense. And yet in human genetics papers, we still see, you know, references to the, the data set comprised 30% Caucasian people. And, and, and it's just something we're, we're more and more aware of and we're trying to spread the message. That we don't actually have the right language to replace it. And that's part of, part of the problem. Yeah. But I think you're asking about cultural identity here, which is so, again, you know, so important. It's the, the, I, many times when, when talking about race and saying that it's not a biological, uh, it's not biologically bound, it's not, it's not a biological phenomenon in the sense that it is a social construct that people sometimes say, well, it's just a social construct. Right. You know, they say, well, well, sort of undermining the argument. Yeah. Yeah. You say race is just a social construct. 
Well, I mean, this is a this is a completely nuts thing to say because yeah, all almost all human interactions are social constructs, yeah. right? It's how we perceive people. We, we we have we have the you know the joke I make is that you have unless you're extraordinarily good looking, you have very few biological interactions with people over the course of a life. <laughs> we have social interactions with with, with everyone that, that we meet. Time right. and money are, are social constructs. But you right. never get people saying, I'm not gonna pay you because money is just a social construct. Right? But these these are socially agreed mechanisms by which we, we engage with other people or, or other phenomena in, in the world. So, you know, again, I, I feel like I have to not not tread on eggshells here, but but just be cautious because the temptation is to say, well, and well-meaning people do this all the time, and I think I've done it in the past, is to say, you know what, race doesn't exist, right? Uh, because biology says that race is not a useful category. We say race doesn't exist. Well, race absolutely does exist, and it's important because it's a social construct, because we perceive race, and because we have to we have decided over the last few hundred years that race is going to be one of the prime ways we, we talk about and interact with, with other people. So it's no good. People like me saying the African American genome is not a cohesive thing. The history of the, the journey from African ancestry, mostly in West Africa, mostly via, via transatlantic slavery into the Americas uh, the, the 12 million or so people who are forcibly taken from their families and homes um, and their descendants who number sort of 40 to 42 million in America now to say, yeah, well, genetics, we've looked at your genomes and th- th- this isn't a sort of cohesive grouping of people it is, is not a useful thing to say because people identify as African-American because that is a cultural identity, which is of enormous, you know, c- complete importance. Um, for those self-describing um, groups of people, so the, this, this, it's it's where I've spent quite a lot of the last few years as a geneticist, basically hmm. underplaying the significance of genetics, which right. is a slightly weird phenomenon for someone who's dedicated their life to being a, a geneticist. Yeah, but it's it's just that I think that throughout history, this, this goes back to the original history: people co-opting or marshalling science in order to justify their ideologies. It just continues to this day. We have, it, it is the attempts to say my prejudices are founded on scientific principles. Therefore, it gives them greater credibility. And, and the arguments I present in the book are, are, are no, you, you, you know, be bigoted if you want to be. Be a racist if you want to be. <laughs> you can't have my tools. Right. You, you can't have my, my subject to justify that bigotry because it, science says the opposite. Science, science mm. says that race is is not a biologically meaningful, meaningful categorization. And here is why, here are the arguments. The first line of the book is, you know, it's, this book is a weapon. And I really think it should be because even though my science and indeed all science was built by racists in a time of racism in order to justify those political ideologies, which we now find odious, the trajectory of our history has meant that today science is categorically not an ally to racists mm. and, and is a weapon with which to fight them. And, and that is, dude, that's worth celebrating. Yeah. Well, 
Adam Rutherford, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me about these subjects today. Your book is hopefully a weapon that many people will carry around in their toolkit. The book is How to Argue with a Racist. It will show people, you know, how to confront the uh, the, the the racist ideas in their own life, maybe the ones that they didn't even consider before, like the ones you bring up in sport, and hopefully uh, get all of us to reconsider some of our own prejudices and biases and evaluate in ourselves because like you say it's inbuilt into the culture we were raised in in the society that we participate in so we all have you know a great deal of self-reflection to do and your book is a good tool for for helping us do that so thank you for speaking with me about it today thank you matthew that was one of the most enjoyable interviews i've, I've done because well you know as much about the subject <laughs> and, and I, I can't wait to tap you up for when i'm doing my eugenics book which starts soon i appreciate that All right. Thanks.